Is it okay for boys to cry? A simple technique that you can use to power up your team's next brainstorming session, as well as a process that you can use to increase your learning speed by up to 200%. These are just some of the topics that I cover with today's guest on the Call to Courage podcast. Welcome to the podcast for men who are ready to lead their most expansive and courageous lives. Thank you for joining us on this adventure where we'll be questioning old paradigms and architecting new ways to live, laugh, and love. I'm Gareth Pickery. And I'm Matt Dazi. We believe that your story could contain the key that unlocks someone else's healing. So we connect with humans from all walks of life as they share their journeys from chaos to courage. So if you're ready to experience the ease and flow that come from living an expansive and well-crafted life, you're in the right place. This is the Call to Courage podcast. Hello, welcome to the show. I am so grateful that you have taken the time to spend some time with myself and my guest today. Before I get into today's episode, I want to share two pieces of housekeeping before we start. The first is something called the Father's Sons Brothers Bulletin. And what we're doing there is creating a short five to 10 minute audio and video version of the latest happenings and news that are going on inside the Father's Sons Brothers community. It's available as a YouTube video, and we're also releasing it as an audio version inside the podcast. The aim of the bulletin is to keep those that are interested in what we're doing up to date with everything that's happening inside our community. We're going to touch on wins from the circles that we've been holding, upcoming live trainings, some highlights from the podcast, as well as special guests and additional features of things that are happening inside our men's community. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, take five minutes and check out the most recent edition of the bulletin and stay up to date with everything that's happening inside the Father's Sons Brothers community. The second piece of housekeeping is a reminder of our free weekly men's circle called the King Circle. Over the last few years, the role that men's work has played in supporting me on my path to be a better partner, a better leader, a better son, a better brother has been pretty profound. And that's basically the reason that I'm feeling so lit up and excited to share the conversations that we have on this podcast as well as inside the King Circle. We have a goal at Father's Sons Brothers to have 10,000 people attend our men's circles and every single week we keep a total of the men that have shown up as we race towards this goal of 10,000. So if you're interested in connecting with a global tribe of men that are having these courageous open-hearted conversations as well as learning from subject matter experts about specific topics that you can use and apply in your life, check out the King's Circle. It happens every single Thursday and it's completely free and your access to the circle will be available at fatherssonsbrothers.com forward slash circle and I'll also include a link in the show notes. My guest today is Zach Townsmith. Zach brings humility and humor to his fathering, facilitation and coaching. He inspires participation and thoughtful consensus in a wide array of groups. He's dedicated to developing intercultural relations and facilitating innovative solutions for regenerative well-being. He believes that interpersonal relationships and creativity are the keys to regenerative enterprise, and he works in settings ranging from corporate boardrooms to dirt-floored rural schools. 
My conversation with Zach touches on a number of topics, including some of the challenges he sees in the education system, the power of vulnerability, raising sons, as well as his journey from Harvard to a garbage dump in Guatemala. So without further ado, please welcome Zach Townsmith. Hello and welcome to the Call to Courage podcast. I'm Gareth and I'm here today with Zach Townsmith. Hey brother, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. So where do we kick off our conversation? We've got a couple things we want to dive into today. Let's start with the question I ask most of my guests, like maybe give your origin story through the lens of the roles that you've been as a father, son, and brother. Hmm. Wow. Origin stories. You know, there's so many flavors that they can take, right? Uh Um, I think uh, really powerful for me is that both my mother and father, uh, in fact, when my older brother was born, they were sharing a job. They were both the director of a um, a new preschool. So a preschool that was founded on, this is 70s Pittsburgh, which was a hotbed for early childhood education in the 70s particular. There's a, um, a woman named Margaret, McFarland, who was at University of Pittsburgh, and she was the mentor for Fred Rogers, who um, has Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is a, you know, ran for 15, 20 years, I'm not sure, a very famous and very beautiful children's show. So there's all this uh, stuff going on at, at CMU and at Pitt and in the, in the, um, in the, the public television network mm-hmm. around, around how to... Uh, how to engage with young children in, in different ways. And so both my mother and father were, were, were very immersed in that and, wow. and actually sharing a job at, at one point. So I think that just gives a little bit of flavor as to, you know, my childhood now connected with that when I was two and a half, they got a divorce. And so my older brother and I uh, stay with my mom and then uh, we moved to Philadelphia from Pittsburgh, which is about six hours drive away um, when I'm five to, to be with basically my stepdad. Um, and it was, it was a big shift obviously. And I think there was a lot, uh, probably still playing out in my psyche around some of the things that happened at that time. But I, I really feel like the divorce in my life, um, given the background that both my parents had, was a lot different than many divorces. My brother and I were never put in the middle of their conflict, for example. Um, sure, we had our feelings about it, and we were encouraged to feel that. You know, There's ways in which, um, from very early on, I was encouraged to be a sensitive and, and emotionally accessible um, kid, boy, man. Amazing. And, wow. Um, and... You know, even while uh, while I was growing up in Philadelphia, every Sunday morning would be a phone call with my dad, and so me and my older brother would take turns having our you know half hour chat with my dad, and we remember we'd tape Saturday Night Live and watch it before the call so that we could talk about the show together and we talk about books together, and so he's always been a huge part of my life, and um, and my stepfather is a clinical psychologist and he's an amazing father himself, and so then you know when when I have two younger brothers. Um, 
you know, half brothers, my mom and my stepdad, I end up getting to be like their, their big brother, but almost like an uncle. Cause I'm like 10, 12 years older than them. Mm -hmm. So I get to have that sort of childhood experience again, but, but really feeling like nurturing with them. And, um, also my brother and sister in, in Pittsburgh on my dad's side, similar feeling during the summers, we'd be there with them. So I feel like there's lots of ways in which, um, I was really, really supported to, to see multiple uh, role models of of masculinity mm-hmm. um, and what it means to to be a father in particular uh, and and a partner that I really had access to from very early on, which you know were really formative in in who I am in in the way that I'm able to 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 share my affection and emotion in the world with, with people and, and really make, um, make education, uh, a centerpiece of my life as it's been, you know, since, since I can remember and not, not just education, but really kind of a, a space of supporting people and, um, and accessing their, their innate emotional tools to, to, to build more authentic relationships with each other. I love that. So is that his origin? <laughs> yeah, no, that's golden. I want to. Um, how does that? How does that look in your role now, educating your kids? What are you, What are some of the ways that you parent? Things that you've taken and things that you've changed um, as a function of being a dad yourself now. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think the the main thing that that I try to do is simply pre- being present, right? Being physically present. And I think intentionally, somewhat intentionally, at least I've developed a life that does not require me to be in a nine to five position that doesn't, um, put real hours on the time that I need to be with or away from my kids. And so, um, I can be a very active part of, of raising them with a great deal of flexibility. You know, if, school doesn't happen one day. I can just spend the day with them or, you know, every, and then other things aren't flexible, right? Like I'm giving them a bath every night, mm-hmm. seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year, um, with them at 7 PM to put them in the bath, take them out of the bath, get them ready for bed and read them stories. And like that, just, just that presence I feel like is, um, is one of the most important ways in which I, I access my, my inner father and, and, and be, and I have two boys too. So it's, it's, um, it's really interesting watching, um, watching them grow up and, and, and dealing with their emotion and the way they deal with it. You know, my son asked me the other day, is it okay to cry? And, um, cause, cause he told me, he told me he fell down at school, but then he said, but I didn't cry. Mm-hmm. And he said, is it okay to cry? Oh. And I I forget what I told him, but I basically told him, yeah, you know, uh-huh. yeah, we don't always need to cry, and uh-huh. you do need to cry. What's bad is not crying when you feel like you want to cry, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and that's been a challenge. It's it's been a path for me. I talk about you know all this like emotionally sensitive and and con- connected ways in which I was brought up, and and even still, I went through, I'd say probably a ten year intentional process of 
of really trying to connect with my my crying and and still it's only in certain occasions that it, that it really lets go and it's very often like a sappy movie <laughs> mm. um I, I wrote a blog post actually on on crying during game of thrones because that's one of them for some reason there's just some scenes <laughs> get you draw it out of me and then it feels so good other times like random movies on a plane i'll be watching and just like find myself crying and that feeling of like what who's watching me how is this you know and then mm-hmm. working all through that in a very sort of subconscious way um unconscious way and then also just trying to access that space where it comes i don't know there's a lot there yeah no sure. no araminta said to me um if you can't remember the last time you cried it's been too long and i think that's true for men and for women and i'm i'm in touch with that part of myself more recently of recognizing that yeah it's a very natural way to move emotion or held tension in the body and i actually i was sharing with my mom i had a call with my mom yesterday and i was sharing that i had been at home here i'm staying by myself at the moment our mentors away and i was in the kitchen doing some stuff and i had some music on and i was dancing and I sent the song that I was listening to to an ex from probably 15 years ago. And it was, the song reminded me of her. And I sent her the message saying, thank you so much for our time together. The song reminds me of you. And I've spent some time going through all of those past relationships and you know, just finding the love and gratitude for all these beings that have been in my past. Mm-hmm. But in that moment of sharing it, I was just overcome with joy and like this expansive gratitude that just sent me into like a flood of tears like an ugly face crying spell which was it just felt like such a strong release and um yeah it's uh, something i would try and practice if i can as often as i can but i don't i don't often find access to it but that was something that happened recently and it's like yeah i think it's so important to come it's very surprising when it happens often Mm mm-hmm yeah where where it comes from you spoke a bit about education you went to harvard what what is that like holy fuck graduated cum laude from harvard as a matter of fact which means wow i I don't know how but i I ended up getting fairly fairly good grades enough to get honors yeah uh for harvard's harvard's an amazing place um i you know brown university Heard of Ivy it. League, yeah. right? But not as famous as Harvard. Right. I actually really wanted to go to Brown when I was a senior in, in high school. Okay. Uh, in high school, I was doing everything. I was in you know three sports and very small school, so I was varsity and soccer and track and basketball and um, I was playing the French horn and band and orchestra and all city orchestra and and I was you know uh, in the student government and on the debate team and mock trial and it was uh, a public school in Philadelphia but a magnet school, um, so that it's, uh, academically gifted. Um, you have to have certain levels to, to be able to, to attend, which has its own thing, which we can talk about. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, did really well on the SATs. And so that combined with my background, uh, I got it, I got into Brown early and, um, Brown was a great, amazing school, but they don't have as much money as Harvard does. So Harvard gave me a financial aid package that was considerably better than Brown's. And at that point, it was like, okay, yeah, I guess. Meaning they paid for your studies or supported them? They the, supported them. Yeah. So I had a summer job. I had um, a work-study job during during the uh, the school year and then um, had, a, had a portion to pay, which was sort of uh, 
you know, based on my parents' income at that point. Okay. <clears throat> and it was, it was a great experience. Harvard's, it's an amazing place. Um, the amount of resources and the, the, the quality of the student body, they do a really amazing job at curating, um, just amazing folks from all different places on the planet and walks of life and spheres of interest. And, but anything you want to do at Harvard, you can form a club and you'll be doing it with the best people in the world. So, you know, you want to, I played the French horn. I couldn't do it at Harvard because there were like eight other French horn players, which were amazing, right? There was just no, no room for that. So I just started doing some theater stuff and I started building theater sets with these amazing actors now all over Hollywood and like, you know, producing, writing, acting. Um, if you want to write comedy, you know, you're, you're the, the, there's an amazing comedy. Um, there's yeah. Anything you want to do. And so that, that was very powerful. I still entered a crisis, uh, in my sophomore year of just feeling like I was sick of the ivory tower. I just took like being, I wanted to like do something in the world. And, um, and I studied African-American studies. I wanted to do biology, not into the whole 500 person lecture and grade it on a curve. So you don't want to share your answers to the problem set or work on it with anybody because you, you want to get better grade than them because that's the only way you get a, an A mm -hmm. is if you get better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So it's very competitive. And I, so I moved out of the sciences and into African-American studies. It was an amazing department, Cornell West, Henry Louis Gates, just amazing names. My advisor is, is a man named uh, Anthony Appiah and uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah. He's an amazing philosophy of race. Um, and yeah, that just, just the experience was very um, eye-opening for me in many ways, but also... Uh, challenging and so i wanted to get out of there and my mom convinced me to stay actually she was like you know what even financial aid my older brother was still in school so if i stayed in school i'd get a better package but if i tried to come back later when he's not in school i would have had to pay more she was like just do it so i was like all right i'll do it but i'm going to study abroad and i ended up studying enough spanish to get credit to go to venezuela and did a natural and cultural ecology six months course in venezuela amazing experience changed my life learned how to speak spanish um, fell in love with Latin America, came back totally just, just not interested at all at the, in the Harvard scene, did what I could to graduate, you know, got out of there as quickly as I could. Actually, the, the commencement speech was given by Alan Greenspan, who was at that point, the president of the, um, of the federal reserve. Um, and so there was a, a protest, a counter uh, speech given outside the uh, of Harvard Yard by a uh, women's studies professor, um, basically protesting this idea that education is for money, right? Um, and really like education being for people. Mm -hmm. um, so given all that, I got out of the country basically as quickly as I given could. Given all that means that- Given all that like environment of, of, of Harvard as being the fast track to- um, to wall street. Um, right. I, I really rebelled hard against that and found a, a volunteer position teaching photography to kids from marginalized areas of Guatemala city came down for six months and fell in love with the country and made a lot of friends, met a woman, you know, and like ended up coming back to Guatemala and really made a life for myself in Guatemala city. Mm -hmm. And, and, found myself and there was a moment uh, in 2001 September 11th uh 
when the World Trade Towers uh, came down. And I was teaching a class in the Jesuit University on uh, cultural studies. And and I, I went to class that day. And, and I remember just kind of some of the, some of the kids talking as I came into class. And I call them kids. They're 18 and I was 22, right? But yeah, yeah. But they're just, they're just kind of shooting the shit. And they say, you know, man, yeah, they, they knocked down those gringos towers, man. Yeah. And like realizing how different an experience I was having than everybody else in the United States at that point mm-hmm. and how I could feel what they were feeling from uh, this sort of like oppressed uh, space of Guatemala, which has this really ridiculous history with the United States mm-hmm. um, of oppression. Um Versus being the victim of this this act, mm-hmm. and so just that was a lens for me of, of a moment when I realized that I was outside of the what everybody else in my world was experiencing, and then just in this new place. And so I lived in Guatemala City for you know more or less fifteen years, and um, and then and now live half of my life in the United States and half of my life here mm-hmm. in in Guatemala and feel like it's a pretty good balance. Like mm-hmm. I can handle that. <laughs> so the the word would probably be like some feeling uncomfortable around the, the level of privilege or access that comes from being in what you said as an ivory tower. Was that sort of the emotion that you were feeling? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my adult life has been spent, you know, really up until I was, you know, in late thirties to this day, I still deal with it, but like, Coming up, okay, I'm, a, I'm white, I'm male, mm-hmm. cisgendered, and not only that, right, but I have blue eyes, like I'm physically fit, attractive, and so all these layers of privilege, just, just one upon the other, being very aware of that and carrying some level of guilt around that. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of my journey has been about figuring out how to um, really leverage the privilege to to build more of the kind of world support more justice support more um yeah freedom support for people that that aren't don't have the same privileges trying to 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 level out the game a little bit mm-hmm. um whereas before i was really kind of denying many of the privileges um in order to really shape a different identify identity for myself, which is this, you know, almost kind of like underground educator, you know, out in Guatemala trying to save, you know, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't make any money doing it. And and that's part of my identity. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason I, I kind of uh, justify the privilege I have because I'm, I, it's like um, pushing away, the things that that could come from the privilege, mm-hmm. um, and so figuring out how to embrace that and then use that to 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 support people and communities and so share that. How do you how do you do that now? Share yeah. some of the the work that you're currently doing and um, yeah, how you make a living. Well, it was really a shift from so this is somewhat uh, controversial, but I really don't believe in the nonprofit. Model. I don't believe in nonprofits. I, don't, I think charity really works for tax breaks and people feeling better about themselves and sharing their their massively, you know, 
and unequal amounts of money, but it doesn't work for the people receiving it. And that's the key word receiving, right? Like the, the result of, you know, 50, a hundred years of intensive, uh, nonprofit work in, in the Guatemalan countryside is that if you or I go into a town, the first thing we're going to see is people with their hands out like this, mm-hmm. which is like, okay, what project did they have? What song and dance do I need to do to get them to give me money? Right. Okay. Because, we're, because that's the, that's the model of, okay, I come in with my, you know, metrics that I need you to get to. And then if you learn to do that song and dance really well, you'll get paid and you'll be able to pay other people and sort of the power structure is focused in, 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 in certain people. And particularly in Guatemala, that is a, is a sort of a military, paramilitary structure in many communities because of the way the the counter guerrilla and counterinsurgency was fought was by arming and empowering people to slaughter their their neighbors. Um, so that's a legacy that we're in. And when you go in as an NGO, it's those same leaders of those paramilitary structures who now speak enough English or at least have the literacy skills to be able to read a, a grant proposal and be the leaders in the community. They're the, they're the ones that are kind of the power brokers and they, right. they stay in power. So there's all these ways in which in which the, the system is designed to maintain itself. And I feel like the nonprofit structure is part of that. The other thing that, that happens happened for me with the nonprofit was I was – Working with uh, with teachers, teaching creativity, I'd go out into the countryside and all over Guatemala, teaching creativity workshops with teachers. And um, you know, one of the main things we talk about is you're creative. You are creative. You know, first self esteem, having that enough to really feel like you can do something new. And then with that self esteem, you can do it yourself. You don't need to rely on anybody else. So I'm preaching this, and then my funder changes their idea around what they want to fund. And all of a sudden I have to go back to these people and say, uh, you know what I said about doing what you want? Well, actually you got to do this instead. Actually, you know, <laughs> do what I say, not what I do. Right. <laughs> and I have to turn around and work where, you know, do the different song and dance for now what they're doing. Okay. And so the whole nonprofit in that sense just doesn't, doesn't support con- continued and, and substantial development and change in communities. Um, and move, so I've moved more towards this, this model of, uh, of social business, right? Of, okay, I can do something to accumulate enough to share it, but it's not like Pepsi where I'm going to sell you poison and mm-hmm. then make enough money selling you poison so that I can, you know, put 5% back right towards your community or whatever. It's like, how can I, how can I develop a business that is doing good, but it's also generating enough value so that. I have enough. My family has enough, and I have enough to share. And when we formed the Cooler Collective, um, that was what that was what that became for me. It became not only a place where I could um, share deep, powerful, transformational healing experiences with people through the the yoga teacher training format, but also that through doing that, there was enough wealth generated that I was comfortable, my family was comfortable, we were able to live the lives we wanted, and then I could I could start my own social program. I became the the karma director for the Kula Collective. And so I, you know, build my relationships, figure out where I can leverage our our funding in the best way. And um and yeah, and then and then support communities on a much smaller scale, but in a much more relational scale. Okay. So that I'm not beholden I'm not making them beholden to certain metrics. I'm not um, 
prescribing exactly what they do or how they do it. I'm just saying, look, Gareth, you know, I've known you for four or five years. I see what you're doing in the community. Uh, how could $2,000 help you? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Great. Well, let's, let's write it up. You know, clearly you have some sort of written thing between us, but not the deep thing where if I give you $2,000, you have to spend a thousand of it on figuring out how to write a report for me and take the pictures and like, yeah, that. Then the right? NGI stuff. but just like do your thing and then tell me how it's going for sure. But, but don't, don't develop a whole wing of your enterprise. That's devoted to, to telling me about how you're doing mm-hmm. or even measuring. I, I have my issues with the whole hypermetric, um, you know, a lot of the big foundations, the Gates Foundation, et cetera, are really moving towards very specific metrics. Someone was even telling me that they've got like drone employed on on places that have been given money so that they can see what kinds of activities are happening there. And then they can wow. figure out how how impactful they're being and, you know, on a scale of one to 10. And like, I don't know, it's it, it gets really crazy these days um, and hyper. And, and at that point, you know what are we what are we doing in the communities? How are we how are we actually supporting people to be engaging with each other in new ways if we're just so hyper focused on on these metrics? And who determines the metrics is the other question, right? Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the things that you, as the Kuli Collective, are are supporting? Like, is there a specific theme? Is it just where you see you need help? Like, what are, what are some of the things that you've done? I'll share the the what I think is one of the most successful. Um, Stories. So, uh, there's a there's a nonprofit here in in San Marcos called Conojel. Yeah, and Conojel has a really beautiful sort of trajectory where they start out as just a foreigner saying there are people starving in this community, I'm gonna feed them, and there's no more basic and and more important really um, way of engaging with the community than making sure that the the least advantage. At least they have enough to eat, so that the kids' brains are developing enough in those that critical window. Mm-hmm. So great project, also you know a little bit paternalistic, and in the end, just really service related and doesn't really support change. So they start to have you know those those um, that recognition themselves as they move on and they grow and they mature and they're they're doing their thing well and they start to add in different programs and stuff. And what I love to do is facilitate collaborative design. So I brought the board together of Conohel. I said, okay, um, what, what's, what, what's your shared challenge? What's the biggest challenge of this community? Um, what would it be like without that? Mm-hmm. Essentially a shared vision for what this community is. Okay. And now how can we create a 90 day mission to move towards that? And with a broad sector of the of the community from political to religious to, um, you know, the women in the kitchen at Conohel who are illiterate to, uh, foreign international volunteers, you know, really broad, diverse mix of people came up with this plan to create a, a cooperative of, you know, indigenous women owned cooperative producing using a solar dehydrator that they had to produce snacks. Mm-hmm. So they started that and have their own issues with that. And, very challenging, but eventually inspired them to get some space donated from the Catholic Church and put up a little food stand on the main path there in San Marcos and start a little restaurant. Went really well for a year, and then they got access to a bigger space. They're like, we need to build a bigger building and, and really do this well. They did it on their own, but they didn't have a budget for a, for a manager of the restaurant. So we said, all right, 
here's our $2,000. We only have $2,000, but what can we do? How can we have the most impact with this? What we're going to do is we're going to find you uh, a potential director and we're going to pay for their first three month salary. And by the end of those three months, hopefully you'll recognize that like, or hopefully there'll be enough income from the restaurant to be able to then take over paying that director's salary. And that's in fact what happened. And that director ended up becoming the director of Konohel. And then doing a, after a community consult, shifting. And so they no longer give out free food to people. What they do is they support women and babies and, and young people with grants and, and the young leadership program. Okay. So they really like focus on these two areas, which are really more about the, the, the prolonged transformative development of the community more than just giving away food. Um, and that's very much about Konohel and their development, but I feel really good about the role Kula Collective paid played in in supporting in a critical moment that shifts towards, okay, we can do this. We have support. We can mm -hmm. make this happen. Um, so that's just one of the one of the programs we supported. Um, we did some theater workshops with youth uh, around here with the idea of making eventually a theater school. Uh, that was right before COVID. So like you know, that that whole initiative hit a wall after that. But okay. um, but then they're not beholden to me to to show me that that school, you know, it's like, it's not, I give this person that I've known for 10 years, uh, $2,000 and they do some amazing workshops with the idea that it's going to lead to something else. It doesn't lead to something else. If I'm, if I'm a big foundation, then that's a big no, no. And they have to give that money back. Right. right. But because it's a relationship and I understand what's going on, it doesn't I can, matter. It's it doesn't just matter. What it's it like, is. okay, we're, we're okay. Now what, you know, sort of like, what did we learn from that? How do we move on? Mm, um, cool. last year we supported, uh, uh, the midwifery program, um, Mario, uh, and also Ista supporting them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, to again, how can we leverage our money? Right. So, uh, using, using that it was $2,500, I think to, to support them in developing, uh, audiovisual content, describing what they're doing and collecting the stories of the local midwives so that then they can use that content to, to find more support in the mm -hmm. community, right? So I it's love like that project. Taking things together. It's an amazing project, yeah. And um and again, like not exactly didn't exactly go the way we thought it was gonna go. The website took a lot longer to make because blah blah blah. And then like the 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 videos are still, you know, sort of an addition and okay, it's okay. Like things happen. But you had a baby, right? And it's like yeah. life happens and and it's really more based on the relationships than it is on the the metrics of of like the specificities around, around how the, how the funds are attached. So that feels really important to me and it, and it, and it's something that right now with, we have, we have a hotel, we have Kula Maya, which is an amusing, amazing, beautiful, um, luxury hotel and, and allows us to, to kind of increase our game, right? Rather than a $2,500 fund, I've got, got a $10,000 fund, you know, okay. and what can I do with that to leverage? So we can get a director and we can build these programs and become a hub for collaboration and we can support uh, matchmaking for volunteers and we can uh, create some courses to, to support the wellness of local visionaries and entrepreneurs so that they can, you know, design their, their initiatives and get support for their initiatives from our guests. And it's like a, just a very much kind of a creating a hub there that's going to support all the other existing initiatives around the lake. And, and that's, that's, that's my, that's my big project right now that I'm focusing a lot of time and energy on is, is how to really build out, um, the collab is what we're calling it, um, at Kulamaya and how it can be a, a real support in 
regenerating the health of the lake, mm-hmm. the health of the communities around the lake, which are obviously intricately in, in, intertwined. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's something that we want to happen. We love the lake. We love the communities. And we have a business here, man. <laughs> you know, we have a huge investment here. Right. So it's in all of our interests that to things improve, work. you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that we regenerate. And a recognition of that interrelated, um, intertwined nature of our of our existence in this planet is, I think, key to any initiative. And and it's interesting then when you take me back to your your original comments about questions about me as a father and how I take that in. And, and it's like, how how can I bring this idea and this concept of really non dual parenting right so 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 often we can you explain non-dual for yeah, those that don't know what that is yeah so so i mean the idea of non-duality right it's like um one of the biggest challenges i have around everybody trying to connect with nature is that it comes from this idea that we are somehow disconnected from nature we're not nature yeah which we've inherited from the greeks Essentially, from our language, philosophers that um, that have that have sort of created this 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 framework of of humanity and nature as being kind of at odds with each other, and that that from that that the Western civilization of dominating nature, um, as opposed to uh, what we often think of as an indigenous framework of of working with nature, yeah. Um, leads us to this very deeply held uh, assumption that we are separate from nature and that that I need to go to retreat or I need to go into the woods to reconnect with nature. And and so seeing myself in nature as, as non-dual allows me to 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 be a part of nature in a, in a way that if I if I have myself set up then I can try to connect but it's always based on this premise of disconnection mm-hmm. to begin with. And I think when you take that to kids, it's like, um, I'm very much into this whole idea of, uh, co-regulation right now. Okay. And I think I'm very much into it because I'm not particularly good at it. Right. Like, like when my kids get upset, I get upset. Right. <laughs> or I guess that means I am good at it. Right. Because they get upset and they yeah, are co-regulating me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like pulling me into their maelstrom right. of emotional, you know, challenges and uncertainty. And how, how do I handle this feeling? And like, like trying out this crazy behavior or scream or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's really putting my mindfulness and yoga into all those tools, breath work to the test mm-hmm. in a big way every day, all the time. Yeah. You know, 2 a.m., like half an hour of when my back's hurting, carrying a screaming baby in my ear. Like, like I think there's no greater test to your ability to, to co-regulate than, than something like that, right? This, this being that, that I love so much, you know, that it really feels like a part of me is, is, is test obviously not intentionally testing me, but like it's, it's testing my ability to come from a place of, of, of a regulated energy, right? Of a place where I'm, I'm really aware of where I'm at and aware of the tools and my ability to shift where I'm at. And then my faith that just by holding 
space in that in, in presence in that state, it's going to affect them, right? Because we are non-dual, because we really are one. And the stuff they're going through is is like shades and images of my traumas. And, and it's so easy to just jump into those worn paths and repeat them because they're feeling the same things intergenerationally. Like it's in their DNA, right? We right. Just, it's in their, you know, it's in their, their emotional, um, layering. And, and there's so many ways in which, um, really the, the, the easiest thing is to just be in those same pathways again. And, and yeah, having children. So my kids are four and a half and one and a half. And so, so I haven't been in it that long. I mean, there's lots of people that know the game a lot better than me at this point, but, mm-hmm. but from what I've learned, and it's amazing what I've learned between my first kid and now my, my second kid and the differences in, in the ways I'm approaching tantrums and like, uh, what we think of commonly as being like tests to my authority. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. before even with my older kid, it would be like, like, I just get this, like, oh, you can't test me that way. You can't treat, you can't hit your grandmother. No, like that's not, and like, like that energy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now I, and it's not that I didn't know a lot at that point, but it still wasn't, I wasn't accessible for me for some reason. So now after lots of practice and lots of intentional, um, experience and learning and learning from doing it the wrong way, um, th- the wrong way. Right. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've gotten to a space now with both of them where I can hold a much more grounded space for them to, to do what they need to do emotionally, physically, et cetera. And then, and then just, just be a, a stable base of, of presence there mm. for them. Mm. So that's, I guess what I mean by, by non-dual. Mm-hmm. What, parenting. What are some of those tools that support you in those moments? Like what are the things that you turn to to regulate your nervous system when you need it? Like, I know you probably have many, but what are some of those? Yeah, ones? a lot of tools. You're probably not expecting me to say cannabis, right? But like sometimes that's that's one of the things that, uh, yeah, that just shifts my my perspective into one of often more playful mm-hmm. approach to things. So play is a tool, right? Play is a, ma- a magic and amazing tool. And so when I, when, I, when I use cannabis, it's sometimes as a, as a shortcut to getting to play. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of them. I mean, breath is another one. Um, and I've Breath noticed, as in a conscious breath work practice or taking a breath in the moment? So we talk about this a lot with, uh, with my older son. Um, taking a breath in the moment is a great idea. But if you don't have a practice behind it, it doesn't work. You don't know to take a breath. Well, even if you get told to take a breath, it makes you more pissed off. Don't fucking have my breath. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to breathe. Like he says that. Like he, like, ah, you know, just take a breath. I don't want to take a breath. Right? Uh-huh. And I, that's my inner child too. <laughs> like when you tell me to take a breath. Mm-hmm. I might not tell you the same way. I might not scream as much. But like, There's a part of you that doesn't want to be told what to do. Yeah. Right. Like, like, especially told to calm down because you're assuming that I'm not calm. And then that triggers me to like, blah, blah, blah. So it's not, it's not so much about like recognizing. uh, So I talked about Mr. Rogers before, and now Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is a cartoon uh, created with the same, um, from the same 
philosophy of, of kids education and every episode they have a song and uh parents out there you probably pretty familiar with this but or if you're not check it out because it's great but there's one of the songs which is like if you feel so mad that you want to roar take a deep breath and count to four one two three four now you're probably still mad but maybe you can approach it with a little more of your prefrontal cortex, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so like putting things in songs like that, creating those practices. But again, um, we started doing, you know, we're not super consistent with it, but we started doing, you know, every night we have tea, we have a little bit of a ritual tea, talk about what we're grateful for, we light a candle, mm. and then we, we take turns making the candle dance. So the idea is to make the candle dance without blowing it out. So what that's doing is it's creating this long exhale and... And That's a great idea. I love that. And then, and then now we've noticed this after like months of having this practice. When he's out of sorts, it's a little bit easier to access this space of like, okay, make the make the candle dance. And I've even noticed him a couple times on his own. The other night we were in bed. He he was like it was like nine o'clock. He's usually in sleep by eight, but he was something something was triggering him. He must have ate something or whatever. It was all over the place. But I noticed we were reading a book, and he just started doing it on his own. He started. Because he has the muscle memory of the candle, he can do that. And and I think when you ask if if I have the practice, if I have that, I don't have a, a consistent breathwork practice. I do it at times, uh, particularly if I'm you know having trouble sleeping. I'll, I'll I'll turn to that. I'll turn to yoga practice, which obviously includes the breath in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of my one of my stretch one of my stretches right now is like is getting more consistent myself in the breath practice and. Okay. And allowing that to again be a support in the co-regulation of this non-dual relationship that, mm-hmm. that we have as a family. I'd love you to join our circle this week because we're talking ice baths, and that's a very strong practice for regulating the breath, getting really? into cold water. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your natural ability is to <gasps> yeah, and and fight for breath. But as soon as you can find your space just to regulate the breath, the nervous system calms down, and it yeah. Disengages yeah. the limbic brain, and it's a yeah, it's a powerful practice as well. Yeah, I love I love cold stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't make time to do it. Slash, don't have a cold plunge. Right. Um, but you know, our neighbor Randy has a has a nice cold plunge, which isn't icy, but it's it's cold. I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in relation to to a sauna. Yeah. But then also. Um, also, just making sure every shower I take, the last five minutes are cold. Yeah, like that's that's, that's a, a, a well. pretty pretty standard practice that I've done for years, and um, and I feel like it really really helps. Now, you know, this might be too much information, but as a as a busy father, right? There's there's many days I don't shower, so it's definitely not a daily practice for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah. You are. You spoke a little bit about uh, facilitating creative leadership why you're excited about that and what does that process look like? I had my first experience leading um, and also writing curriculum. Uh, I was a freshman in college and there's a um, organization called Peace Games. It's now called Peace First, but they do um, violence prevention work and in grade schools. So I was uh, the summer after my freshman year writing and testing curriculum with third and fourth graders on 
how to be more in touch with their emotions, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an amazing experience. And I learned a lot of great things about how to facilitate and also things not to do. What are some of those? Um, well, the, 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 the story that I remember most clearly, you know, this is an eight or nine year old and, um, he was particularly attached to me. This was in a, in, um, Jamaica plain, Boston, uh, a Catholic school. There were, there were some kids that are having some real struggles at home that were part of the class. And, but he really latched onto me as kind of like a, like big brother, uncle, father type figure. And, mm-hmm. and I was 18 and, and that was cool. Cause I had little brothers and it's just very familiar. And so one day after school, I took him out to pizza and, um, one of the teachers told me afterwards that like, that I should, I should be careful because he, um, had witnessed his father killing his mother and his two other siblings and then committing suicide. And that, that was like a cold plunge, right? It was like, wow. Because what happens then? Where do, what, what happens after I develop this relationship with this kid? Like, I'm 18 years old. I'm a freshman. Like, I'm not going to adopt him. I'm not going to even be able to take time out of my schedule to go and hang out with him once a week. Like, that's not, that's not what this relationship is about. Right. And so what that made really clear for me is, is the way in which when we facilitate experiences, when we come to this teacher relationship with people, this mentor space, how there are lines. There are lines of affection, there are lines of intention that that need to be very boundaries that need to be very firm and clear. Mm-hmm. Um in order to reach people and have really powerful transformative experiences, for me it 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 requires a, a layer of separation. Mm-hmm. And I've I've had lots of conversations with people that don't believe that, and I and I totally respect that. Um and I also think that um, though having that clear experience and those kinds of boundaries have really supported me in what it means to be a male leader, teacher, facilitator in the yoga spaces, which are so often female students okay. and how to have healthy, respectful, deep, powerful, transformative relationships with people that don't raise any questions about sexuality, for example, or, or even, um, even friendship. I mean, yes, we can be friends obviously, but like not setting up an expectation that we're going to be hanging out, Mm -hmm. you know, really like we can hang out obviously, but yeah, what's, where's that line? So that's, that's one of the things we talk about. Um, another, another piece that's, that's, that's really powerful in the, in the creation of spaces, like don't just keep doing what you think works without measuring how well it works. Okay. And so in order to measure if it works, you got to be really clear about what you want to happen and how you're going to know whether or not it happened. Okay. So if you're going to develop any kind of educational experience, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, an hour that you want to share a concept on, on breath work with your friends, or it's, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, a 25 day intensive 200 hour yoga teacher training just being really clear about what your intentions for their learning are and then really clear about the the ways in which those are going to be evidenced okay so let's do this as a practical example so yeah. we got a circle next week and we got a facilitator coming to teach a short half an hour on breath work and ice bath well how would you how would you 
manage that in terms of setting up expectations. Right, so the first question is, what do we want people to come away knowing or being able to do? That's the way typically in the pedagogical development, you do, you, the learning intentions are separated into to like knowledge and abilities, right? Okay. So what do we want people to know at the end of the half hour? Okay. So I would check in with him. We want to know how to have a breathwork practice. What is the second question? And how what do we want them to be able to do, right? To do, yeah. yeah. So to actually be able to jump into a cold plunge and install it as part of their their life. Right. Yeah. Right. So so how are we going to know at the end of half an hour whether or not that worked? Okay. Yeah. Have I got a step-by-step guide of how to do the thing? Uh, but not just got it, right? Like maybe after the call, they have to like do a quick, you know, one minute, like mm-hmm. what are the steps? And then how many people get it right? Okay. <laughs> or, okay, a week afterwards, send us a picture of you in the ice bath. How many people send that picture? Right. So that you know how many, whether it's worked or not, right? Right. And then because if we don't know what works, we can't improve it. Mm-hmm. Right. And if we're always kind of trying to improve these things, we're always trying to make them better. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a really just a, so it's really, it's a design process, right? right? Where the first thing we have to look at. So, so, so often, like, you know, I'm a facilitator. I've got tricks up my bag. I like this one. This is a game we're going to play. Bam. We're going to learn this thing. Yeah. And, I, but I haven't thought about the reverse design of it. Right. So first of all, where do I want you to get by the end of it is what I need to know very clearly. Mm-hmm. And how am I going to know you're there? And now, okay, what can I do to develop this? happening Mm. and often that means building in evaluation tools to the actual work which looks like a practicum essentially Mm -hmm. so for the yoga teacher trainings we have a very uh, you know within five six days of the of starting the training we have all our people lead a uh, one one hour one and a half hour yoga class Mm -hmm. and then they lead another one and then they lead another one and so that by the end we have a really clear idea of how they're doing and what mm-hmm. they've learned cool. and practicums are a great way to do it because it's it not only is it a measuring tool but it's also a learning tool in of itself right the actual experiencing of the mm. of what it means to put that learning into practice so it's the same piece of teaching what you're learning like because you have to practice it you're inherently having to teach it at that time so it's no longer just something you've intellectualized inside your mind you've actually had to articulate it and teach somebody else yeah and before we go too much further i'm gonna have to object to the use of the term teach (laughs) okay because uh one of my dear friends and mentors the late great john dunn liked to say that teaching doesn't exist right teaching is this because scientifically Things exist when you can measure them, right? So you have to have some way to measure something. And we can measure whether or not I've learned something. But the measuring of the teaching part is impossible because people learn things all kinds of different ways and in all kinds of different time frames and in all kinds of different, you know, uh, modalities. And so when I ask most people what it looks like to be teaching something, they think, oh, I'm standing up in front of people and talking. Right. And even if you have a broader idea of what teaching means, it's really all about this kind of transfer of what I know into your cup. Right. And and Paulo Freire and 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 all this idea of this different approach to education is really about lighting a match, you know, lighting a fire, sparking something that then takes its own speed. And at that point, that's not, that's not a teaching, you know, it's an inspiration. It's a, it's a sharing. And from, from the, from our language comes this, 
this in idea around teaching that it's really this more transactional, like the banking system of, okay, I take, you know, pour this into there and now, you know, when that's not, that that's, that's something that was set up. I just read that the, the U S school system in particular, um, was funded to the tune of $1.5 billion in the early 1900s by Rockefeller, mm-hmm. who also said, we don't want thinkers, we want workers. So this is the philosophy of the person who funded the founding of the educational system, which is still used in pretty much the entire world. And it's very clear that 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 the whole system is set up with teachers, right, to to create these automatons who are going to run these massive machines that the industrial world needs to mm. to to transfer uh, value from cheap labor onto you know the lifestyle we want to live. So, what do you use instead? Well, that's a challenge. <laughs> like facilitation, <laughs> God. Of, yeah, facilitator is usually the word I I, I like because it, it makes facile, right? Facile in, is in the Latin root is about about ease of. So it's like supporting a, an experience, facilitating facilitating a learning experience. Um, feels, but it doesn't always fit. Doesn't always work. It's a little clunky because teaching is so embedded into our into our. Into our Lexicon, t- even yeah. the word training, right? We talk about yoga teacher trainings, but training is, it's a military word, right? Training is what we do to our dogs, right? We train, we expect them to learn a certain behavior and we have certain, you know, uh, series of activities that are going to allow them to replicate that behavior. And then we are successful at doing it when they're successfully able to replicate that behavior. And mm-hmm. training is like, that's what that's about. So I don't think that the, you know, what do I use? I, 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 I struggle. I have this conversation, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and try to, uh, try to support a little bit broader language and thinking around what it means to be sharing educational experiences with, with kids or with, with peers or, or, um, obviously, you know, there's a ton of stuff that I could learn by being with you. But I don't think there's anything that you could really teach me. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, because the learning is often both ways. And if it's not both ways, then as a teacher, I end up just replicating, copy paste my teaching, mm-hmm. and that's not that's not useful for anyone. Mm-hmm. Really. Okay. So I don't have a good answer as to what to use instead. That's teach. okay. No, it's interesting to think about because I yeah I. I inherently agree with you on most of the the stuff that I see in education at the moment. I think it needs a complete overhaul and I think there's a lot of money invested in it staying the same, yeah. but I think it's pretty clearly broken. And my mother is an educator. She works in a school. <laughs> She's yeah. a teacher. Right. She teaches, yeah. Right. <laughs> and so she, yeah, so it's, it's inherently part of, part of my imprint that makes me believe that, yeah, in some ways we've been taught to do things. But yeah, I agree that the the way to learn and impart knowledge is really an experience between two people in a specific space or more than two people in a specific space. Yeah. And it gets challenging. I mean, cause there's this inherent desire to scale things, right? There's this idea that like, shit, the, the world's falling apart. It, it's not enough for me to just sit with you. Right. I've got to, I've got to touch more people mm-hmm. or 
I can't charge you enough to just be with you. <laughs> I've got to be with more people, right? right? There's all these ways in which uh, bigger audiences and scales of things are, are kind of baked into the transactional nature of education. Uh-huh. And also the urgency that we feel around many of us around like the shape of the world and the state of things and, and, and in the urgency around changing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, thinking about scales is really powerful and what, what are good sizes for groups that we are, that we're engaging with mm-hmm. and how does that work? You know, I, I think that Many times a, a circle of 12 people that I'm facilitating can get more out of the experience than if it were just two. Because I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the yeah. only one bringing experiences right. yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and reflecting and supporting learning processes. And in particular, peers are often more more effective at that than, than, the, than the teacher, right? Right. Um, as well as the lessons that come from hearing other people's questions. That doesn't always happen in a strict one-on-one teaching educating environment yeah exactly so you have like me felt a bit of a call towards supporting men and fathers and you have a project called father husband hero i'd love to hear a little bit about that and hear what your vision is for that and yeah how it's going yeah husband father hero is a um i want to share something it's it's so interesting that we have father, sons, brothers, and you have husband, father, hero. And yeah, I recognize that there's a part of me as well that in another version of my world would be really concerned that people have similar businesses or similar mm-hmm. ideas and themes and even similar names that would be like some sense that I sh- perhaps should be looking in a different space. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, being really lit up by the fact that we have more and more people showing up to do this is actually, uh, yeah, it feels amazing to have more soldiers in this, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. in this mission. Yeah, and and being aware of the military reference as well is is an important one, especially as we as we recognize and challenge the the ways in which the the traditional masculinity kind of invades our our spaces. Right, the idea of like soldiers in this mission mm-hmm. is very different than like partners or mm-hmm. brothers. Right, just yeah. so, it, it's so challenging when, when so much of our educational framework is it has has military hierarchical structures embedded within it um but yeah it's 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 a very very much aligned with 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 what you're working on a friend of mine who uh, went to harvard together um and have been really tight friends since then his kids are are a little bit older um preteens basically and uh and our relationship over the years has been um really supportive and beautiful and uh, open and emotional. Um, in, I've got, I've got a couple groups of, of all men friends, right. From different er- eras of my life, but mm-hmm. really Kadar is the one who I feel able to be most vulnerable with. Okay. And and through our conversations and our relationship, this idea emerged of how to support more people in being able to have these kinds of of, of relationships. Essentially, how can we um, inspire each other to 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 be vulnerable? This call to courage, right? How can we um, share this? 
the, the what, what feels like a, the magic of our exchanges in a, in a broader way, in a way that's going to be useful for 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 individuals and for society as a whole. So, um, so the idea that we're that's in development, and that um, because of the the craziness of our lives, and I think also because of the challenges around, um, I'd say I'd say maybe a tension between. Um, between doing things that uh that that are intuitive and that are sort of just an extension and continuation of our relationship and also trying to do it in ways that uh are search engine optimized <laughs> that okay. are um going to be uh sought out literally by uh by other people, um, because that's 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 part of that that recipe. You know, we to do the authentic thing and also figure out how to how to package it in a way that's going to be consumed, right? That it's going to be engaged with, that it's going to be um, heard um, and 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 taken in, um, digested. So so some of those tensions have led to a, a little bit slower roll out than than I think we've imagined at times. But yeah, the the idea is this this um this space for for particularly fathers um to to engage with each other and engage with ideas around uh around what it means to be a a, a dad within within this emerging concept of masculinity which rejects the toxic nature um of the of 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 manhood that's projected you know you could say that there have been some changes you know mad men is one of the 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 references people make to how bad it used to be mm-hmm. and uh I, I don't think there's many ways in which it's changed it, it may have gotten a bit subtler just watching the super bowl and some of the ads on the super bowl and some of the assumptions still made by around the roles that women play versus the roles that men play and the, the et cetera, et cetera. It's very much still. Um, and, and if you challenge that these days, you're, you're, you know, accused of, of having the woke virus, you know? So there's a really scary place for men because either you're, uh, sort of holding up this, you know, hundred years old or 200 years old, however it is, idea of masculinity, uh, which, which has been branded toxic, which is about, um, uh, sort of aggressiveness and, uh, authority and control. Um, or you're swimming in uncharted waters, um, probably being laughed at by your group of male friends for things, or even, you know, made or you know made to feel uncomfortable for calling out misogyny in the jokes or um you know there's there's very i think very few spaces for men to safely engage with other ideas around what it means to be a man particularly around what it means to be a father um because you know one of the one of the aspects of being being a man that 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 
becomes really challenging really quickly is being a father. Uh, and when men are engaging as fathers and not simply sort of outsourcing the the raising of children, whether to a mother or some other figure, but when when really the the hard conversations, moments, um, challenging behaviors are 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 being dealt with in a consistent way by the fathers. There's very little experience. I mean, I mean, you you heard my origin story. I've got lots of experience with sensitive men, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it feels like, uh, yeah, there's just a uh, a lack of um, a community out there uh, mm-hmm. around around people that are that are showing up and that are feeling these challenges. Oh my God, I really just want to smack this, you know, like. Mm-hmm what do I do with this? How do I do that? I did smack him. Okay. Now do I feel guilty? Like, did I ruin my kid? Like I hear all this stuff from like, but is that just, is that just like woo woo? Is that just, you know, uh, wokeness or like, or, or am I just raising an overprivileged brat? You know, there's, there's so many ways in which all these, these things get, get, uh, kind of coalesce into different, different perspective and different lenses around the, the the ways in which we engage with our children that um yeah it feels necessary to 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 share a little bit of our experiences and and our challenges and our you know headaches and and and, and the guilt that we feel around it you know because that's i mean i don't know if you've ever had an experience with your dog when you're trying to discipline the dog but like maybe you get a little little out of him and then the dog like like feels it and like has a little bit of trauma around the way you've treated them. And like, uh, I've, I've done that with dogs and I feel like shit afterwards. And like, imagine that's your kid. Right. And you're like, Oh my God, I ruined my kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and so there's, there's, it's, it's delicate. It's a delicate sphere. And, uh, and an important one, really important one, because obviously they're the ones that are inheriting this, this broken model mm-hmm. and, and we can do what we can to fix it now. And they're the ones that are going to have to really like bring into reality the new model. You know, we can like paint some paint some ways forward and start start some paths and build some communities and stuff. But they're the ones that are going to be leading those communities, and inhabiting them, and making sure that they they stay true to their 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 original origins and the way it all plays out. Yeah. So. So that's that's a project we're and we're we're I'm I'm noticing in this project that I have this isn't the first time I've noticed it but it's coming up a lot in this project that I have some fear around failure um around creating uh creating an offering and then people not showing up for it or not not marketing and not sharing it with others in the right way so that people don't find out about it or the price points wrong or the timing's wrong or like like there's so many things that can go wrong when try to organize something so that I'm coming up um against the fear of failure uh, based on previous experiences I've had trying to do this as well as um this idea that I think uh one friend in particular when I was in high school was just like always on me about Zach, you have such a big ego. You have such a big ego. Like, why don't you just like be a little more humble? And so like, I think I really kind of took that to an extreme of like just humility and just, and, and I, and I, 
that's one of the virtues that I feel really strongly about. It's one of my sort of favorite <laughs> virtues is humility. And so how I balance humility with really getting the word out there about the things I'm doing has been a challenge for me and something that I still haven't quite um, figured out how to do. But one of the ways that um, we're we're moving forward with that is to, to to create an offering, create a space for dads to disconnect, to reconnect. Mm -hmm. So um, the idea is a weekend at my wife and I have a retreat center in the land she grew up with uh, in Tennessee mm -hmm. um, called Seven Springs. And we're calling fathers there, calling fathers there for a long weekend to come and be together. There's a lot of free time in there. So you can hike or you can, you know, play games or, or, or just sit in the hammock as well as, uh, some facilitated conversations and dialogue, uh, reflections, um, some tools and practices to do this co-regulation thing better. Mm -hmm. Um, might do some cold plunges in there as well. Like, like really just kind of creating a space for fathers to have some time away from their responsibilities and their, their families and, in that space, really take time to self-reflect, learn a few tools, connect with others, see themselves in their community, and um, and then and then feel supported as they move on. And I feel really strongly about in-person stuff. We've been doing more and more online stuff, especially since the pandemic. And I I have had really beautiful experiences and powerful connections with that. And it's it's not it's not where I I I draw my highest, you know passion and yeah really i feel that me. piece as so well. like so amazing to be with you here now this is why i like doing these in person because uh yeah there's something about being in each other's space that uh that i really appreciate and yeah i think i've had to find my own balance between digital and analog specifically around spending some time creating a digital creation like the podcast but also my weekly men's circle is online and I then have a separate circle, which is in person. And yeah, the opportunity to sit around in circle with people is is really powerful. And that's actually once the father, sons, brothers, weekly men's circle starts to take shape and starts to grow, we really want to create a model where men can take a framework and take it into their own communities and meet with fathers, sons, and brothers in their own space and hold their own in-person gatherings and come together in that way. So yeah, I feel that I feel that tension as well. It's like some sense of the digital gives an opportunity for scale and distribution and, you know, sort of a lower cost. And we came as human beings to have a 3D experience. And so, yeah, making sure that we don't have too few of those is, yeah, it feels like part of the, the tension that I'm, that I'm dancing with as well. Yeah. And again, going back to this idea of, you know, connecting with nature versus I am nature. I mentioned that I like to do collaborative, facilitate collaborative design. Um, and as part of that process, I developed a tool called Flow Design, which supports communities and, and entrepreneurial groups to come up with, you know, again, a shared vision and a shared 90 day mission is the, is the outcome of that, mm -hmm. that process. And, uh, I've also begun to use it with, uh, with individuals. Okay. And so as part of all our YTTs, in fact, people do this flow YTT design process. YTT is yoga teacher training. Yoga teacher training. Um, so in, they're in this, 
immersive experience. As part of that immersive experience, they're getting clear on their personal vision and then taking all the the tools and, and learnings and experiences that they've had and figuring out how to strategically design the next 90 days to move them toward that vision in, awesome. a, in an intentional way. And um, as a result of me doing that multiple times, um, I've got my own vision, right? Which is, I. so up until recently, it's been I thrive with nature. And, and it feels really powerful. And then again, I look at it and like, I thrive with nature. Like if I'm with nature, it means I'm not nature, right? So I'm actually thinking about changing it. But but my point is that my vision is really about my connection with this 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 nature nature and natural world. And so as as a result of this process, it's been a litmus test for me around how I spend my time. For example, uh during during COVID, I started researching um virtual reality. Okay. And uh, and got connected with a with a group um, who does uh, uh, virtual reality meditation groups and experiences, mm, and it's it's a really beautiful organization um, group. They're connected with Trip now. Trip bought them out. It was a nonprofit that that um, is now connected with Trip. Um, T R I P P. It's like an app you get in your VR headset, and it has meditation things, and then also now like community experiences. You wow. can go in there and, and build community. So I got connected with them and together with my friend who's uh, a Buddhist Lama and has been involved in uh, developing VR experiences that replicate the effect of uh, psychotropic drugs in terms of having peak experiences for people. Mm. Um, so so essentially, instead of taking mushrooms, you just put a VR he- headset on and have these experiences that that through their research they've proven is at least as uh as powerful as the the psychotropics um so anyway uh karma and i developed a a mixed reality retreat Mm -hmm. where it was three days and we had sessions on zoom sessions in the headset with our avatars playing with each other and doing you know creative games and building and things like that and then also uh augmented reality where uh he and i would record short meditations in mp3 and then our participants you know sunday morning we all didn't didn't come together everybody went on their on their own hike and they listened to the meditation as they're on their hike Mm -hmm. in nature it's amazing experience really cool but i also realized that it wasn't where i was well it's not about my vision my vision is really about nature so if i'm going to spend my time in a VR helmet, then it's time away from what's really connecting me and helping me thrive. So I, I sort of haven't moved anywhere since then. Okay. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, right now there's so much opportunity, which is available when you do engage with the computer and the online stuff. And I was a photographer for years and I learned how to do it in a dark room. And then when it became on the computer and just one more thing I had to do on my computer, I, I really fell off and, and stopped doing it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I spent most of my senior year in, in the dark room, you know, yeah. <laughs> sniffing silver, <laughs> yeah, yeah. whatever. Um, so all that to say, It's it's a challenge to find space of presence and also leveraging the tools in ways that um, allow me to to continue to be present for myself, my family, my kids, um, as well as as the kind of extension of this broader community, which which um, 
which I know and I feel can be very powerful. Um, yeah, it's a sweet spot for sure. And I, I, I really admire all of the, you know, we've talked about the, the years you've put into like, like getting it right so that, that the, all the back end is taken care of so that, you know, if, if, if I want to offer a circle, I can put it <laughs> on your platform mm -hmm. and then, then all of that work that you've done is essentially uh, supporting me at, at creating the kinds of communities that, um, yeah, that we dream of, right? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So on, Kudos on, to on you that, thank that. you. Appreciate it. It's been, yeah, it's been a wild ride. I think before we've turned on the recording, it was like it's been like you up and down. There have been days when it's felt amazing and there's days yeah. when you want to give up. And yeah, but yeah, today feels like a good day. It feels like we've dialed in some stuff. It feels good. Yeah, I'm in a good space at the moment. I'd like to ask you, do you have a sort of light version of your personal flow facilitation that you would be willing to offer to our circle like for a half an hour teaching? Is that something yeah, that you could show up for? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so, I first got into the the study of creativity um, in Guatemala, um, and it's a it's a field. There's there's master's program at Buffalo State University, which has been around for fifty years, and there's there's a lot of a lot of research and a lot of um, yeah, a lot of study in it. Uh, but I came in through a very different lens, which was which was very much more of a kind of a, a European, Latin American view of creativity, which is maybe a little less corporate, okay. <laughs> um, a little more kind of human centered. Uh, but in that in that exploration of creativity, I um, I found an outlet. I I'm an athlete. I play capoeira, a Brazilian martial art. Um, been doing that for about for about 15 years studying and teaching as well teaching right i use the word too <laughs> um and then uh and then i'm also a musician you know i play in two different bands here in guatemala i have been in, in the states as well uh write songs um sing with my kids <laughs> uh and so that's a huge part of my life i i i was a photographer for many years um i came down to guatemala teaching photography i taught intro to photography at the university for years um so there's all these like creative aspects of my life, which I couldn't quite figure out how to bring together until I really understood that creativity itself is something that's, that's, that's underlying the art and that we all have access to. And, and that at the root, um, self-esteem is what often blocks our access to that. And whether I'm working with an indigenous illiterate Mayan woman, uh, or I'm working with a, a CEO, um, there's, there's often a similar, um, resistance or blockage to fully accessing creative potential, which is based on being told that story that I am not creative, essentially that I'm, that I'm not enough. Um, and that the, the unique ideas that I have aren't going to work <laughs> essentially. Um, so what I like to do with the flow design process is, is spend uh, the first part of it really just digging into the concept of creativity, uh, because if we're going to apply creativity in a, in a design process, we just, we need to access, okay, understand, you talked about designing things, right? So one of my learning intentions for this half hour of, of uh, intro to creativity is going to get there with you to yeah. understand 
what your blockages to creativity are. Identify at least one blockage that you have to accessing your creativity. And then, you know, uh, you know, if we have a little bit longer, I can share some tools on how to how to overcome the specific blockage. And then if we have a little bit longer, we can, you know, so there's uh, there's ways in which it scaffolds upon itself. this these learning intentions, depending on how much how much time you have. Right. But for me, they're really central and, and, and essential one. And really the only thing we can do, because creativity is so broad and expansive a term and 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 difficult to define and it really something that's based on on discipline and continued practice so so for me to pretend to to have any other learning intention during my half hour talk is like it, it's it's not going to work right i'm going to be frustrated at the end of it mm-hmm. so so how can i again i want you to identify at least one thing that is blocking your access to creativity so then i design all my activities in that half hour and it's very it's not about me talking at people it's about people having experiences reflecting on those experiences and me potentially shining some light observe, observing people in the experiences saying well i noticed you did or i heard you say this and like reflecting that back so that then people have more of a recognition of and what that does is it allows me to also get a sense of how well people are doing it recognizing the blockages so a game we can play, for example, right now, which is a great idea. I, I there's there's two kinds of thinking: left brain and right brain. But that's a big myth, right? The brain doesn't work that way. It's not like you do your analytical stuff with your with your left brain and you do your your creative stuff with your right brain. You have two lobes of the brain for sure, but they're not like divided in their actions that way. Mm-hmm. We know very little about the brain still, but we do know certain things. And one of the things, one of the main tools we have is the MRI machine. So you put somebody in a, uh, put a jazz pianist in an MRI machine Mm -hmm. and have them play something they know. And it lights up in very linear and predictable patterns, you know, motor cortex, memory cortex, blah, blah, blah. Then you say, play something improvised. And while they're in the MRI, they're playing something improvised and the picture is very different. It's like very, you know, emotional memory, motor, emotional, and then like just all over the map. And those are two very separate and distinct Types of thinking uh, in the in the literature of creativity, they're called divergent and convergent. I like to think of the divergent as lunar, and the convergent as solar. Mm-hmm. So we've got lunar and solar thinking, right? And it doesn't work if you're trying to do both of them at once, right? So often we do that, like, oh, what do you want to go eat after this, Gareth? Well, we could eat hamburgers. We could, and you're like, no, I had a hamburger yesterday. So what that does to me in my brain is instead of supporting me in this expansive lunar thinking where the whole idea is about quantity, not quality, right? Mm -hmm. We're just going to get lots of ideas. The the typical brainstorm. thing is when people do brainstorming, they never really get to the lunar thinking part because my boss is sitting next to me. What's he going to say? You know, I'm never really accessing this, like, say anything and everything that comes to my mind. So really accessing that lunar thinking is often where people find their their blockages Mm -hmm. because of, you know, the the years of conditioning around saying the right thing or saying the appropriate thing or mm-hmm. saying the polite thing or, you know, so one of the, one of the games we play to access this and also to warm it up because it, if right now we're doing a lot of solar thinking, talking to each other, listening to each other, this is all convergent and solar analytical. If we want to brainstorm about what we want to get to eat afterwards, we can't just start brainstorming. That'd be like going onto the, the, the football pitch Cold, right? Mm-hmm. We got to warm it up. Yeah. So there are games we can play to warm it up. And secondarily, they also support us in practicing the ability to, to do lunar thinking. So this game is called Lunar Words. 
And I learned it from my teacher, Maria Iniguez, who's an amazing woman who for the past 45 years has been teaching creativity all over the world from, you know, dirt floored school rooms with indigenous Mayan women to, you know, uh, universities and boardrooms and throughout Spain. And, and so this very simple game I learned from her, uh, I say a word, then you say a word, then I say a word, then you say a word. The words don't have to have anything in common, mm-hmm. right? It's not about the relationship. It's just about the speed to which we do it. So I say dog. House. Nose. Glasses. Wild. Araminta. Pimple. Yeah. Side. <laughs> and it just carries on and on. On and on and on. And and uh, like that starts to happen. Yeah. Right? That's Run out quite, of things. Yeah. And when that happens, it's like, okay, why is that happening? Why am I pausing? Because oh, we're on a podcast. I don't want to say dick out loud. Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, so all these things. And I realize. I'm already trying to realize why we're not, with all the things I said, I said Araminta's name. <laughs> right? I'm and, and making it's very sense of it. Yeah. Not to try to make sense of it. Right. I get Because yeah, it's yeah. not like a Rorschach test. We're not like psycho, psychoanalyzing ourselves around what yeah, we say. Yeah. But but because that that's how we start to feel guilt. And that, that's that. that that's again, that, that, that turns again. on high speed the editor in our head instead of turning it off, uh-huh. right? And really the, the challenge is to turn it off and then get everything going. And in fact, in my life, I'm too lunar. So if I go into a, a you know, we have somebody over to talk about, you know, a building we want to build. And I'm like, well, we could do this and we could do that. And they, they walk away feeling like totally overwhelmed because I've said like 50 lunar ideas, all of which are different from each other. <laughs> I'm a little too lunar at times, right? There are times when scale that back. And you need to create space between them. Otherwise, you know, again, like I say to Jesse sometimes, don't solar my lunar, babe. Don't like, let's go lunar for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Think about all the possibilities before we then decide. And what that does is it allows for, you know, all kinds of quantum mechanics and possibilities and like things to pop into reality and and, and then come about that don't happen if we're constantly within a, a, a solar construction. So, just playing, just by playing that game, we can get so many realizations about, um, about the ways in which we walk and, and and interface with the world, and and in general, my view on education is, it, I like to substitute the word play for the word work whenever possible, right? So, okay. um, studies show it takes like up to four thousand repetitions of something to learn it, unless you're playing, and if it's in, encased in a playful activity, uh-huh. it's ten to twenty repetitions to learn so when you talk about experiential education it's really the only kind of education right you can't learn something by sitting and listening it's really about playing examining reflecting and again it's not just about the doing or the playing of the game it's then about because so many times how many times you've been in a group and like okay let's do an icebreaker and you do the icebreaker and okay we did that and now let's move on Right. right. But like, wait, there's so much rich stuff that just came out in that icebreaker. I guarantee you, if we start to think about the way I approached it and how I felt and how my, like we can come together as a group much better and really actually break that ice. But so many times that opportunity is missed mm. because it's not intentionally placed and the rules aren't, aren't done in a way that, that it's going to generate the kinds of reflections and experiences that are going to lead to um, a recognition around, oh, shit, when I was three, I have this memory of my dad yelling at me for, I'll say that again. <laughs> Layla just saying hello yeah. to someone at the gate. <laughs> so I have this memory of, uh, you know, when I was three and my dad yelling at me for pooping in my pants because I thought it was a fart and it was going to be funny. And like the three-year-old mindset is like, okay, here comes something funny that I'm going to share with my dad. Fart. Oh, 
And obviously in his own situation, you know, recently divorced from my mom in his apartment, doesn't have a change of clothes for me. All of a sudden I've got poop all over. Like there's no like blame or, or, or even judgment on me for him, for his reaction. Right. But it's just recognizing what it creates in me and my fear of failure, right? Okay. That's just one of my blockages to creativity mm -hmm. is this, this like very ingrained um, tendency I have of, of avoiding blame. And so not understanding the reasons why things happen because mm. I'm convinced that I'm trying to push away. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got uh, many gifts for each other. I'm excited to to have you in the circle. And I think there's also going to be a space when you're in that circle for reflection on how we can improve based on your program design and how we're evolving every single circle. So I'm excited for you to, to show up there. And, uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks for doing the work that you're doing and for showing up for this creation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the the opportunity. And um, again, one of the, what I love to uh, facilitate collaborative design. So it's like, you know, get a group of people together and figure out, okay, what is our shared vision? Because mm -hmm. so often when, when businesses want to uh, do something creative, do you need to get that? No, I think someone should get it. It'll just probably okay. keep ringing for a while. <laughs> So, so when, when like a business wants to do creative things, like often the, the biggest, uh, hurdle that they face is, is, is motivation. So they get, you know, somebody to come and do a motivational workshop or whatever, but, yeah. but motivation is, is superficial unless everybody has a shared vision that they feel like they've been engaged in the development of not just like, Hey, this is my vision. You like it? Good. Yeah. You're on board. But like, right. okay, what's. What's our challenges? Mm -hmm. Okay, what would it be like without those challenges? Oh, that's our vision. Cool. Let's go there together. And so supporting, I, I, I work with, you know, organizations, businesses. Um, the Kula Collective is came up through this process of flow design, essentially. Um, and because of it, we became clear that that we wanted to work as a board not on voting, because I don't believe in democracy. That's another, that's another big one. Um, because democracy is all about uh, disenfranchising the minority. So how can we create more consensus-based um, decision-making processes? Mm -hmm. And how can we do that in ways that work and develop community that really um, feels engaged with with projects and, and, and collective action? So good. Where can people connect with you to find out more about this process and other stuff that you're working on? It's a great question. Um, so... Uh, I'd say basically there's, there's three main websites that, that, that I'm working through, right? Uh, the .com is, is our, our yoga teacher training school. And that's where, you know, basically all of my pedagogical, uh, experience went into the design and structure of these trainings and, and, and offerings. And, and so, so that's a, um, that's, yeah, I feel like that's a really amazing place to go if you're into that kind of experience, particularly yoga, mm -hmm. but also, uh, transformational experiences so that's a that's a great place to, to engage with um the the place that my wife and i have created as a as a retreat center to host our retreats as other treats as well as seven springs retreats uh -huh. and that's in uh the foothills of the smokies and it's really beautiful uh, we've got yurts and springs and yeah it's a place to come and 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 uh, engage with us in those kinds of things and there's the creative leadership uh workshop is there as well as the uh dad's disconnect to reconnect cool um and then uh and then husbandfatherhero.blog is our is our place to connect in in terms of how we're moving this this project forward of our of our friendship with kadar and how we can really support um more more loving dads essentially 
So good. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah, well, thank you. So good to have you on. I really appreciate for... the, the time and the space and the, the connection. Appreciate you, bro. Yeah. Thank you. Much love. Yeah, likewise. Ciao. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. And I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did producing it for you. If you want to find out more information about today's guests, as well as access any of the resources that we spoke about in the show, make sure you check out the show notes. I'll also include a link to the Father's Sons Brothers homepage where you can connect more deeply with the tribe as well as secure your seat in our free weekly men's circle called the King Circle. If you want to support the show, please feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts as well as share this episode either directly with someone that you feel could benefit from listening to the episode or any of the episodes that we've created as well as sharing this episode onto your social platforms so that more people can connect with the conversations that we're having. Thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Ciao.